Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you are listening to episode number 387 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Prehistory Part 2. Dinosaur, and the U.S. Air Force's Manned Orbiting Laboratory. As the Apollo manned moon landing program developed through the early 1960s, domestic welfare issues and the war in Vietnam began to dominate the media, which at the time was mainly composed of evening TV news shows and morning newspaper headlines. These External issues worked against NASA seeking further funds for new projects like space stations. Though development of a space station had been placed on the back burner following the decisions of 1961 and 62, which were covered on the previous episode, it had not been abandoned and several NASA centers continued to work on ideas for space stations. Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, and Marshall in Huntsville, Alabama. This, of course, was the home of Von Braun, who was very outspoken about his own ideas for a space station. It seemed there were a lot of concepts. Everybody was working on one. But a lot of these concepts were just ideas. Notwithstanding, NASA feasibility studies determined that a research space laboratory could be placed in orbit by 1967. However, to fund such a project, it had to be justified by achieving a national goal or an important science goal or as a testbed of technology. There had to be a valid reason for creating this station. To complicate matters, it was also necessary to identify exactly what could be accomplished on a space station that could not be achieved by Mercury, Gemini, or Apollo, or for that matter, even an unmanned spacecraft. One interesting NASA study proposed the modification of Apollo systems for a 100-day orbital duration capability test, 
which could evaluate the feasibility of using Apollo hardware for a series of low-orbit missions. To do this, certain compromises would be required to keep the design as simple as possible. For example, no artificial gravity would be provided, and only the existing hardware could be used in order to achieve a short-term and cost-effective station. In early 1963, a report was released on future manned spaceflight studies indicating that a space station would be a requirement by 1970 to support the launch and repair of spacecraft and to serve as a scientific laboratory. It was proposed that this space station could be launched in two sections using Saturn C-5 launchers joined together in orbit and could be supplied by modified six-person Apollo Command Service Module ferry vehicles. Still, just a proposal. In testimony before House Committee on Science and Astronautics in March of 1963, NASA Deputy Administrator Hugh Dryden stated that the most obvious candidate for a post-lunar landing program was a manned Earth orbital laboratory. NASA and the Department of Defense had already begun to discuss closer coordination between both agencies in space exploration. At a time when the military was evaluating the use of a manned orbital platform for its own reconnaissance objectives. Then, in June of 1963, NASA issued two space station study contracts to the Lockheed Aircraft Corporation and the Douglas Aircraft Company Missile and Space Systems Division. Requirements for a space station included a capacity for crew rotation, resupply facilities, and an operational lifetime of around five years. Running congruently with the space program studies and proposals, talks were evaluating the ability of spacecraft to carry scientific instruments, most notably telescopes, into orbit, and what would be required to achieve this aim. During a NASA Manned Spacecraft Center meeting with the Bendex Eclipse Pioneer Division in 1963, the problems of including stabilization techniques for incorporating high-resolution telescopes on board manned space vehicles were explored. These included pointing accuracy, fields of view, and actual location on board the vehicle. Along with the paper study efforts, there were problems in actually developing hardware and systems for these proposed programs. Perhaps the greatest difficulty was providing technology for prolonged use. In July of 63, a planned 30-day engineering test of a life support system in the Boeing Company space chamber had to be stopped after only five days due to a faulty reactor tank. 
This test was to evaluate the United States' first life-supporting equipment for a multi-person, long-duration space mission, including environmental control, waste disposal, crew hygiene, and food techniques, and habitability issues. Also in July of 1963, North American began another study in response to a request by the Manned Space Center. An Apollo Extended Mission Study Report was to evaluate the potential for two or three-man configuration to orbit at 100 to 300 miles altitude for 100 days. There was to be no resupply during the 100 days, and the spacecraft launched by a Saturn 1B would either use a command and service module on a solo flight or a command and service module with separate mission module as living quarters. It was really an evaluation of whether an Apollo command and service module could remain in space for 100 days, withstanding prolonged exposure to the space environment, and then safely return the astronauts. In November of 1963, the resulting report indicated that the uncertainties over a prolonged exposure to long-duration flight for both men and machines would be answered eventually on an Earth orbital laboratory on missions exceeding one year in duration. The report suggested that the modification of existing equipment, such as the Apollo Command and Service Module, would be more feasible than the development of totally new hardware. Based on the favorable results from the 100-day study, the proposed missions ranged from the adoption of basic Apollo hardware to a separate laboratory with self-contained systems and life support. Both were technically sound and were capable of achieving mission objectives within minimum cost and time frame. Now, that was what was going on with Apollo hardware. But there were also plans for using Gemini Titan hardware. But before I approach this next topic, which is the United States Air Force Manned Orbiting Laboratory, also known as MOL or MOL, I want to briefly mention the Dinosaur Program, which was a predecessor to the MOL Program and was somewhat like an early version of the space shuttle. So here is some brief background information on Dinosaur. Dinosaur was a hypersonic glider designed to launch atop a Titan III booster. It would go into orbit around the Earth and then return using its aerodynamics to glide to a smooth, unpowered runway landing. It was conceived in the mid-1950s, but didn't really get approval until 1957 after Sputnik's launch, when getting a man into space became a national imperative, 
the Department of Defense gave the program permission to begin. The problem was no one had a clear idea of what dinosaurs should be. It was a joint United States Air Force NACA program when it was transferred to NASA in 1958. But this meant that it really had two roles to fulfill. For the Air Force, it was meant to be a manned bomber. For the NACA and NASA, it was designed as a research vehicle. The Air Force maintained dinosaur was imperative to maintaining a military space capability, as did Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense. However, it just wasn't able to keep pace with NASA's developments, and in 1962, NASA was really giving the Air Force a run for its money when it came to space. By the end of 1962, NASA had launched five Mercury missions, totaling about 20 hours in space. The Air Force, on the other hand, had no man hours in space, but it did have a great potential program, Dinosaur. But the problem for Dinosaur was that unlike the Mercury spacecraft, Gemini had a lot more orbital capability. Gemini was also conceived as a system that would land on a runway using a paraglider. Dinosaur's main advantage of being able to land on a runway didn't really have an advantage over the Gemini paraglider runway landing. So, Robert McNamara started thinking about a military version of Gemini to compare with Dinosaur in terms of capability. The comparison report came back in favor of Gemini. Dinosaur didn't have any significant advantages, and using a NASA spacecraft would allow the Department of Defense to take advantage of NASA's research to make sure it was getting the most out of the technology. So, on December 10, 1963, United States Air Force announced the cancellation of the military X-20 dinosaur space plane in favor of a man-orbiting laboratory with Gemini hardware to access it. NASA would provide technical support, which it was stated could suit both United States Air Force military and NASA space station requirements. Before it was canceled, the Air Force made a publicity video touting the benefits of Dinosaur. Here's the audio. Someday, in the not-too-distant future, a piloted glider will make a flight around the world. After circling the Earth, the pilot will control his re-entry and landing at a selected airfield. As the ship descends from the rim of outer space 
At more than 18,000 miles an hour, the denser atmosphere sets up a glow in the glider's skin, parts of which look like a white-hot poker. To protect the pilot against the rigors of atmospheric re-entry requires the latest developments in aerothermodynamics, heat-resistant metals, rugged structural design with a minimum weight penalty, reliable communications, effective flight controls, and precise guidance. In the end, it takes the cool hand of a skilled pilot to bring his glider in for a conventional landing. This is Dinosaur, a dynamic soaring vehicle. Under this tarpaulin is a full-scale mock-up of the Dinosaur glider currently being developed by the United States Air Force. And this is a model of the glider our Air Force test pilots will be flying. Compared to modern aircraft, it isn't especially large. Not for a vehicle that's going as far and as fast as this one. But what we see here represents a major achievement in aerodynamics. To design and fabricate a vehicle that will stand up under the punishment a glider like this must undergo calls for the finest know-how we have from drawing board to the actual hardware itself. Not to mention some first-rate piloting. For this dinosaur project puts an emphasis on the pilot, on the man. The objective of dinosaur is to put a manned maneuverable glider out on the edge of space and fly it back to earth at will. Follow on dinosaur vehicles will allow man to perform space missions and return to earth for a soft re-entry within wide tolerances, landing the winged glider at an airfield of the pilot's choice. The experts have long known and practiced the art of dynamic soaring. When it's properly designed, a glider has remarkable aerodynamic characteristics. And when it's boosted into the air, it returns to Earth safely, even though it is completely unpowered. Of course, the glider's design and configuration are critical if it is to have the desired maneuverability. Reducing the overall weight increases the effectiveness of the booster. Although the concept of dynamic soaring has long been in men's minds, many technical problems had to be licked before we could proceed with confidence. When it comes to working with a man glider, it proves to be quite a trick to combine the glider with a large rocket booster. Once we've launched the glider into space, the problem is to bring it back without it becoming a fireball, like this test nose cone photographed as it re-entered the atmosphere from a ballistic trajectory. A manned glider can ease into the atmosphere. The pilot glides using the dynamic energy built up during launch. The art of staying in his flight corridor, making a carefully controlled letdown at hypersonic speeds with regard for changing air density and glider lift is called dynamic soaring, hence the name dinosaur. 
1958, the Air Force, after consideration of several design and feasibility studies, established the Dinosaur System Program Office at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. A year later, the Boeing Company was selected as system contractor. At the same time, the Martin Company was chosen as associate contractor to supply the rocket boosters. In addition, numerous other contractors throughout the country have supporting roles in this historic project. The most important development requirements are in the areas of stability and control and structures and materials technologies. During re-entry, the glider will encounter structural temperatures of several thousands of degrees. Various materials and structural concepts have been successfully tested under simulated re-entry conditions. Since the beginning, a comprehensive wind tunnel program has been underway. Dinosaur wind tunnel tests have occupied every major tunnel facility available throughout the country. Scale models have been subjected to aerodynamic environments similar to those which will be encountered by the glider in actual flight. Tests have been made to determine how intense heat changes the chemical and electrical properties of the atmosphere around the glider, thus affecting communications. Communication equipment and facilities have been developed to make it possible for the pilot to keep in touch with the test controller at all times. Components were subjected to vibration tests, for the vibrational environment created by the powerful booster engine affect the design and development of each and every dinosaur component, from the struts and joints to the most delicate electronic part. The dinosaur program calls for two kinds of boosters. First, for early test phases, modified Titan intercontinental ballistic missiles will be used. For the orbital mission, the booster must be quite large, equipped with tremendous power. The booster will be provided with large fins to offset the effect of the winged glider on the nose. And there's the sound of the booster engines. This in itself presents another engineering problem. Acoustic chambers are used to study the noise which will hammer away at the glider. Launching a pilot into space in such a hypersonic, maneuverable glider as Dinosaur requires the most expert technical backup available. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration is participating with the Air Force in the Dinosaur program. NASA's experts bring to bear their long experience with various experimental programs. NASA's Mercury project, in which man rides a ballistic capsule into space and back, has been of value in the preparations for Dinosaur. And the X-15 program, this vehicle's pioneering flights have used control techniques that have been useful in the design and development of Dinosaur. A special centrifuge that resembles the Dinosaur cockpit has been used to determine the effectiveness of the pilot's capabilities under the G-forces he'll be exposed to during launch and re-entry. Protective pressure suits have been developed that provide the pilot with the freedom of movement within the confines of the cockpit. Exploration of glider handling qualities in the six degree of freedom flight simulator has been used as one basis of configuration determination 
and has familiarized the pilot with the glider's control responses. The men who fly Dinosaur will be specially trained test pilots, selected for their adaptability and accommodation to the new conditions they'll be encountering. Before a man steps into a glider for his first flight, he will have been trained to handle his glider under any and all conditions. To carry the dinosaur project to completion, an orderly flight test program has been planned. During the first phase, the pilot and glider will undergo airdrops from a mother ship. On these flights, the glider will use a rocket engine to achieve the necessary speed for a test of its aerodynamic characteristics and its functional subsystems. These airdrops will be followed by the launching of unmanned gliders for flights down the Atlantic Missile Range. Later, there will be piloted probes out over the Atlantic with landings at downrange sites. When all systems and components have been successfully tested, the dinosaur will be ready for its orbital mission. The pilot's safety is a prime consideration. During the preparations for launch, he will be in constant touch with ground personnel in charge of the operation. forces acting on the pilot's body will be no more than he has experienced in conventional jet aircraft. He can abort if anything goes wrong. The pilot monitors every indicator, alert to take any necessary corrective action. His observations are relayed to scientists and technicians following the vehicle's course. The first stage separates and the second stage accelerates the glider to an even greater velocity. Finally, the glider is in orbit. The centrifugal force of the dinosaur equals the pull of gravity, and everything is in a condition of weightlessness. In this environment, the pilot will keep the glider oriented by using the reaction controls to maintain or change attitude as desired. There is an inevitable advantage in exposing a man's intelligence to this new environment. For what he learns out there will affect the concept of manned operations in aerospace for years to come. The pilot's greatest challenge will come when he descends through the flight corridor. If he loses altitude too fast, the glider will exceed its temperature limits and burn. Now that the air is getting denser, highly heated shock waves develop around the glider. Rudder and elevons respond to the slightest movement of the pilot's controls. He manages the potential and kinetic energy of altitude and speed, maneuvering to hold the temperature of the nose cap and wing leading edges to an acceptable level. The instruments not only tell him where he is, but also indicate what action is to be taken to get back on course. Below, radar eyes watch the sky. As he nears the airstrip, the pilot banks the glider into a 360-degree turn to use up the last bit of excess energy before flaring out for a smooth touchdown.
Perhaps now you may sense some of the interplay of men and ideas in industry and government which must be brought together to accomplish the dinosaur experiment. Why are we doing all this? Why dinosaur? Because with dinosaur, we're establishing a new technology that enables us to extend Air Force operational capabilities into the hypersonic and orbital flight regimes. Future outgrowths of dinosaur may very well assume vital roles in our national defense. Through this program, we are making use of what we've already accomplished in the missile, space, and aeronautical sciences. Dinosaur is as fundamental to future space operations as were the early experiments at Kitty Hawk. By putting man at the controls, the Air Force has carried forward into space. That journey started by the Wright brothers a little more than a half a century ago. We have some time left, so I want to begin my coverage of Mole. I won't finish it on this episode, but I will continue it on the next. Mole was part of Skylab's prehistory, and in fact, it was like a small space program in itself. So let's begin. On December 16, 1963, the United States Air Force Headquarters ordered the director of the Mole program, General Bernard Shriver, to submit a development plan for the Mole. About $6 million was spent on preliminary studies, most of which were completed by September of 1964. McDonald prepared a study of the Gemini B spacecraft, Martin Marietta of the Titan III booster, and Eastman Kodak of the camera optics. This was the basic equipment for satellite reconnaissance. Other studies examine key mole subsystems such as environmental control, electrical power, navigation, attitude control stabilization, guidance, communications, and radar. The United States Undersecretary of the Air Force asked the Director of the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, program to look into the mole's potential reconnaissance capabilities. In all, $3.2 million was spent on these studies. The most expensive was of the Gemini B spacecraft, which cost $1.2 million, followed by the Titan III interface, which cost $910,000. With these studies in hand, the United States Air Force issued a request for proposal to 20 firms in January of 1965. At the end of February of 1965, Boeing, Douglas, General Electric, and Lockheed were selected to carry out design studies. Covert NRO activities to be carried out by Mole were classified secret and given the code name Dorian. In February 1969, the mole was given a keyhole or reconnaissance satellite designation of KH-10 Dorian as a black project, which means one that was secret and publicly unacknowledged. 
but one that was impossible to completely conceal. Mole needed some white, meaning unclassified and publicly acknowledged experiments as a cover story for its existence. A mole experiments working group was created under Colonel William Bradley. Some 400 experiments proposed by several agencies were examined. These were consolidated and reduced to 59, and 12 primary and 18 secondary ones were selected. A 499-page report on the experiments was issued on April 1, 1964. Although reconnaissance was its main purpose, manned orbiting laboratory was still an accurate description. The program hoped to prove that astronauts could perform militarily useful tasks in a shirt-sleeve environment in space for up to 30 days. As I mentioned, the U.S. Air Force recommended that the mole use the Gemini B spacecraft with the Titan III booster. A program of six flights, one uncrewed and five crewed, was proposed. The first flight was to take place in 1966. The program was estimated to cost $1.65 billion. The science advisor to the president, Donald Hornig, reviewed the U.S. Air Force's submission. He noted that for the sophisticated reconnaissance missions proposed, a human-operated system was far superior to an automated one. But he speculated that with sufficient effort, the gap between the two could be reduced. He also noted that while countries had not objected to satellites passing overhead, a crude space station might be a different matter. But the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, thought that this could be managed. There remained the question of whether the improved performance compared to the automated Keyhole 8 Gambit 3 satellite, then under development, justified the cost difference. The director of the Central Intelligence, Admiral William Rayburn, agreed that it might. McNamara took the proposal to President Johnson, and on August 24, 1965, he approved it and issued an official announcement at a press conference the following day. In the wake of Johnson's announcement of the program, Mole was given the designation Program 632A. The United States Air Force announced the appointment of Shriver as Mole Director and Major General Robert Evans Greer as Vice Director. By August 1965, the Mole had a staff of 42 military and 23 civilian personnel. Johnson had announced two mole contractors, Douglas and General Electric. While the former had considerable technical and managerial experience from the Thor, Genie, and Nike projects, 
General Electric had experience with large optical systems and perhaps more importantly had over a thousand personnel immediately cleared for Dorian, while Douglas had only a few. The Aerospace Corporation was given responsibility for general systems engineering and technical direction. Douglas selected five major subcontractors, Hamilton Standard for environmental control and life support, Collins Radio for communications, Honeywell for the attitude control, Pratt and Whitney for the electrical power, and IBM for data management. Okay, let's move on to the mole astronauts. Of course, just like the NASA space program, astronauts had to be selected for the mole program. Fortunately, to provide prospective astronauts for the X-15 rocket-powered aircraft and dinosaur and eventually some type of orbiting laboratory, the Air Force got a head start for the mole program. In fact, on June 5, 1961, the Air Force created the Aerospace Research Pilot Course at the United States Air Force Experimental Flight Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base in California. Now that school was eventually renamed the Aerospace Research Pilot School, ARPS, on October 12, 1961. Four classes were conducted between June 1961 and May 1963. The third class receiving instructions on dinosaur as part of the course. The Commandant of the ARPS, Colonel Charles E. Chuck Yeager, advised Shriver to restrict the selection of astronauts for the mole to the Aerospace Research Pilot School graduates. The program did not accept applications, strangely enough, but 15 candidates were selected and sent to Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas for a week of medical evaluation in October of 1964. The evaluations were similar to those conducted for the NASA astronaut groups. For the first three NASA astronaut groups in 1959, 1962, and 1963, the Air Force had established a selection board to review candidates before forwarding their names to NASA. The Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General John P. McConnell, informed Shriver that he expected the selection of mole astronauts to follow the same procedure. A selection board was convened in September of 1965, chaired by Major General Jerry D. Page, on September 15, 1965, the selection criteria for mole was announced. Candidates had to be qualified military pilots, graduates of Aerospace Research Pilot School, serving officers recommended by their commanding officers, and holding a U.S. citizenship from birth. In October of 1965, the Mole Policy Committee decided that mole crew members would be designated mole aerospace research pilots rather than astronauts. The names of the first group of eight mole pilots were announced on November 12, 1965, 
as a Friday night news dump in order to avoid press attention. Here's the list. See if you recognize any of these names. Major Michael J. Adams. Major Albert H. Cruz, Jr. Lieutenant John L. Finley. Captain Richard E. Lawyer. Captain Lachlan McClay. Captain Francis G. Newbeck. Major James M. Taylor. And Lieutenant Richard H. Truly. To prevent their return to the U.S. Navy, as would normally have occurred on graduation from ARPS, Finley and Truly were retained at ARPS as instructors until the announcement was made. In 1965, the United States Air Force began selecting a second group of mole pilots. This time, applications were accepted. Selections were made at the same time that NASA was selecting astronaut group number five. Many applied for both programs. Successful candidates were told that NASA, or MOLE, had chosen them, with no explanation why they had been chosen by one and not the other. Over 500 applications were received from which 100 names were forwarded to the Air Force headquarters. The Mole Program Office selected 25 who were sent to Brooks Air Force Base for physical evaluation in January and February of 1966. Five were selected, and their names were publicly announced on June 17, 1966. They were Captain Carol J. Bobko. Lieutenant Robert L. Crippen, Captain C. Gordon Fullerton, Captain Henry W. Hartsfield, Jr., Captain Robert F. Overmeyer. Bobco was the first graduate of the United States Air Force Academy to be selected as an astronaut. Eight other finalists for the second class had not yet completed ARPS. One was already attending. The other seven were sent to Edwards Air Force Base to join Class 66B. They would be considered for the next Mole Astronaut Selection. The Mole Astronaut Selection Board met again on May 11, 1967 and recommended that four of the eight be appointed. The Mole Program Office announced names of those selected for the third group of Mole Astronauts on June 30, 1967. They were Major James A. Abramson, Lieutenant Colonel Robert T. Harris, Major Robert H. Lawrence, Jr., Major Donald H. Peterson. Lawrence was the first African-American to be chosen as an astronaut. from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, 
And I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 387 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Prehistory Part 2, Dinosaur and Mole. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you would like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about 10 months. If you don't know what that is, please give me an email and I will give you the address. My email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Believe it or not, my Twitter handle is working again. Of course, you may recall I had over 1,100 followers, but then we had the hacking incident and lost them all. But my handle is up again, the same handle, at Space Rocket Hist. So if you would like to follow me, we would appreciate it. I am up to 70 followers now. I appreciate your following. Our next episode should appear by May 5th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 207 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Now, if you're using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine won't find it. Google made some changes. I don't know why. And by the way, If you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. Had a few afterthoughts. Of course, I want to apologize for my mispronunciation of words and names, as well as the echo in the background. I think the echo is getting better. I have more furniture in the podcast studio this time, and I put up some echo-inhibiting foam panels. Hope that helped. Hope you're enjoying the Skylab prehistory. I sure am. NASA had so many concepts of how a space station could be done. And it's interesting to see how it has evolved or as it evolved over the as time passed. And as always, it seems to come down to funding. Everything is about funding, having enough money to do this. But the ideas they had were really fascinating. I was particularly interested in that six-person Apollo command and service module. Now, how would they have fit six people in that capsule? The only thing I can figure is they would have just had to make it bigger. I would like to see the concept drawing on that one. If you have a copy of that, I'd like to take a look at it. So email me that thing if you have it. What did you think about Dinosaur? It was another interesting concept that didn't get finished. Of course, I have a picture of it posted on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com with this episode. That thing was cool. The Air Force was going to use it for reconnaissance, but, of course, Jiminy won out because mainly of funding. It Many in many ways, it's like it was like a precursor to the shuttle as well. I guess today's equivalent of that dinosaur would be the X thirty seven B, that space drone they send up and it stays up there for a long time and then they just 
all of a sudden bring it down. <laughs> it's a really secret thing. I guess that's they're doing reconnaissance with that. Anyway, I wish they could have funded that dinosaur. I guess that brings us to the mole program. It was the mole program was sort of like a mini space program in itself, you know. It was but it was kept quiet. It was not generally, you know, it was not generally well known or anything. They were trying to keep that as quiet as it, as possible because the main purpose was reconnaissance. Wow, it would have been so neat for that to have flown with a crew. They did make one test flight with it. And I will have more coverage on that next time. But I, I guess just the, the, I like the idea of doing things with that vintage hardware. It's just so interesting. I love that stuff. That's what I love to go see at the museums, that vintage hardware. A space station atop a Titan booster with a Gemini capsule. It's just so fascinating to me. I wish they could have funded that one too. You know, they were going to put a hatch right in the heat shield of that chimney capsule so the crew could enter into the station without going outside. So, man, that would have been neat. Anyway, we'll find out more about that mole, which was part of the prehistory of Skylab, believe it or not. Now, for those still interested in the house progress, we have been moved in for a little over two weeks now, and we are really enjoying it. We still have a punch list of about 10 items the contractor was supposed to complete. So far, they did one item. And uh, right now, they're not really responding to our calls very well at all. Like, uh, they're not really calling us back or texting us back or anything. So I went ahead and started doing some of these punch list items myself, the ones that I could do, and I got a few knocked out. Now what we still don't have, which I can't do, is window screens. It, we have one window screen, and we've got about, I don't know, we got probably about 10 or 12 windows around the house with one window screen, so we can open up one window without the bugs coming in, but, but that's it. We could use our screens. And the other thing that kind of bothers me is that it's still, when it rains, we still have the, the block in the basement is getting wet, which that just doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Wet block when it rains. We've done what we could to get the water away from the house. I installed those, uh, the gutter drains, those long hoses. I installed those on all the gutters, and uh, the water seems to be getting away from the house pretty good, but there's still just a couple places in the basement where the blocks are getting wet every time it rains. I'd like to get that fixed. Uh, and believe it or not, I didn't realize how dirty it was, but we had to change the filters for the uh, heat pump already because they had so much of that uh, red mud dust, had that dust all in them. And uh, it must have been really dusty in here. I posted a picture of the view from the podcast studio window. So I, I took my camera and I looked out this window that's right to the left of me. And I took a picture. 
and it looks really nice. We have a field of canola growing, which is kind of looks like a yellow flower growing out there. And it is really beautiful. We took some uh, Easter pictures out in front of that field, too. It looks really good. Now, I will, I posted that over on Patreon, which is free to look at. So if you'd like to see it, go over there. And uh, I, over the, the next few weeks, I'll post some more house pictures over there because I'm sure some of you are interested in seeing that. To uh, see them, you just go to patreon.com slash history and look at the post, and you will see it there. Hope you check that out. And that is your house update for this week. Over the past fortnight, we received several donations and pledges. I would like to thank Richard M. from Virginia, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communication dish emoji. Stephen L. from Michigan pledged on Patreon at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a galaxy emoji. Steve C. from Georgia donated at the Gemini level and earned a galaxy emoji. Ben M. donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. And Greg H. from Louisiana donated at the Soyuz level and earned a satellite emoji. Our total Patreons are the same as they were last week, our last episode, 255. We're trying to reach 300 by the end of 2022. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 308 with an overall goal of 500 for the year. So if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running over nine years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. Well, you know, we are in our house. We're still unpacking, but that's quite all right. The best part of our day is when we get little visits from the grandkids. Why, just the other day, Evan drove his little John Deere tractor over to visit his papaw. What a special treat. He was so cute. He had on his cowboy hat and his boots, and he parked his little John Deere tractor right in the driveway in the front of the house. <laughs> it was just adorable. Oh, so very thankful for these precious times together. Now, for the drawing. The winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Matthew Geratus. Matthew Geratus, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. My apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 308 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were Wired.com, NASA, Encyclopedia Britannica, Astronautics.com, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Growing Up with Spaceflight, Skylab slash ASTP by Wes Oleski, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chladick, Vintage Space, the United States Air Force, the National Reconnaissance Office, and Wikipedia. 
And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 388 posted by May 5th, 2022. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.